Uh, before we begin, I would like us to just uh, stop again for just a moment uh, and pray and commit this time uh, to the Lord. So let's pray. Lord, we uh, come before you this morning as your people. We declare that you are uh, holy, God, that you are so good to us to deliver us from sin and death and to give us life eternal through the blood of the cross. We can come and sing of that this morning and, and consider what you have done to redeem us as your people. Lord, we consider too how you have displayed yourself through creation, how you have revealed yourself to us through your word. Lord, help us to look to you and you alone for what is true and right as we seek to live and honor you in this life. Lord, we thank you for, so, for how we are so blessed um, as the church in America today to have uh, a copy of your word before us, um, to have so many resources that help us uh, in understanding your word, from commentaries to, to preaching. Lord, you have blessed us tremendously uh, as the church in America today. Help us, Lord, not to take it for granted. Lord, I pray that we would uh, be a people who love and cherish your word. And so, Lord, as we come uh, into these moments, we ask that you would be honored and glorified in all that is said and done in this place. And it's in your son's holy name that we pray. Amen. Uh, John MacArthur is one of uh, my heroes in the faith. He has made a tremendous impact on my life, as I know he has for so many of you. If you don't know this about John MacArthur, he has been the pastor of Grace Community Church in California for 54 years. Um, that's more than half of his life. And so in that time, he has done uh, some tremendous things. He's written commentaries, books, his preaching, ministry, uh, the Shepherd Conference that they hold for pastors each year. But one of the things that probably goes unknown by a lot of people is over the past 54 years of ministry, John MacArthur has been able to faithfully preach through, verse by verse, the entire Bible uh, to his congregation. That is profound, uh, especially in a day where we are so transient and people rarely live in one place for more than three or four or five years, for a man to faithfully preach the Word of God verse by verse uh, and to preach through it in its entirety is a testimony to the goodness and grace of God. Um, I would say we need more of that in our day. Uh, and so it is, it's my prayer um, that God would allow me, as the pastor of this church, uh, to be faithful in that way. And as we come this morning to our first book of the Bible that we will walk through together, uh, I think it is fitting for us to consider these things. Um, I've seen the past three months as really a prelude, if you will, to uh, this moment, this morning, as this is, in a sense, to me, the beginning of my preaching ministry here at Calvary Hills Baptist Church. Uh, we have been looking at chapters and verses over the last three months, preaching them expositionally. 
uh, where we as a church affirm the preaching of the word is best done when we expose the text, when we preach the text. We don't read our own agendas or ideas into the passage, but we let scripture speak for itself. That has been my desire. Uh, but the past three months, we've kind of jumped around, looked at different chapters and topics, and this morning we come to a book together that we will walk through uh, faithfully if the Lord wills and he does not tarry over the coming weeks and months. And so I'd ask you to turn with me this morning to Genesis, Genesis chapter 1. Uh, we're not going to get far this morning. We're just going to look at the first four words, but... Uh, this morning will look a little different uh, than what you have expected from me and should expect from me, as um, we will not finish the book of Genesis in the year 2023. Um, now, we will take some breaks. Uh, we will not only look at Genesis each Sunday of this year. Uh, Genesis lends itself to pauses in the story, so we're going to do that as well. We're going to take several breaks this year from our study in Genesis. Uh, we're going to take a break and look at First and Second Thessalonians together. Uh, we'll pick up in Genesis again. We'll take another break. We're going to look at the book of Ruth uh, at some point this year. We'll jump back into Genesis, and then we'll finish out this year with a series, uh, an Advent Christmas series. And then this time next year, we'll come to the end of our study in Genesis. And so this is a big endeavor that we are embarking on together this morning. And so a part of the reason why this morning will sound a little different is because I think it's important for us to set the stage for what we are going to do in the coming weeks and months and years as we walk through this first book of the Bible. And so if you will allow me, I want us to do several things today. First, I want us to answer two questions. Why Genesis? And how is it that we will walk through and study and consider Genesis together? Then I want us to look at some background to the book, also some themes that we should be looking for as we walk through the book of Genesis. And then we will close with a brief exposition of the words in the beginning, God. Those four first words there to chapter 1, verse 1. And so, if you would, begin with me uh, by considering why it is we will be walking through and preaching through Genesis in the coming year. Four reasons that I want to give to answer this. There's lots of things that I could say about this, but four primary things I want to say. First, in answering this question, why Genesis, is that Genesis is relevant today. We affirm as a church that all of Scripture is relevant for all of time, Genesis to Revelation. So that on any given Sunday, we could turn to any page or any chapter and any verse, regardless of the genre or context, and the Word of God could speak to us and would speak to us. And so... This is why I think it's preaching through books of the Bible and having a sermon schedule is something that's really healthy for us as the church because in so doing, we are affirming our reliance on the relevance of Scripture in our day. Although this book was written thousands of years ago, it is just as relevant as we sit in this place this morning as it was when it was penned by the writers through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so some are... Uh, somewhat shocked or surprised to hear that I've planned out the sermon schedule for the rest of the year. Um, it might seem a little strange to some of you to think in those terms, 
Uh, kind of the opposite end of the spectrum is for a pastor who might just wait till Monday to start planning for Sunday um, and um, say, you know, I'm just I'm going to pray and see where the Holy Spirit leads us. And, and man, if I did that, it would be Thursday or Friday before I could find the text that we would be in. Um, but something else to consider in that, um, I can tell you right now where the Holy Spirit wants us to be in October of the year 2033. And it's right here in the pages of this book in which he inspired. And so setting a schedule for preaching does not damper the Holy Spirit. Rather, I would argue it helps us to trust in the Holy Spirit as he speaks from his word. Also, and this is important, more specifically, the relevance of Genesis in our day where we live in rebellion against God's order for creation is so needed. In a day where we are being told that sexuality can be whatever you want, where men can be women and women can be men, we must return to the basics, the God-ordained realities about who God is and who we are as his creation. And we find this in the pages of Genesis. Second reason why we've come to Genesis is that it is foundational to the faith. If I may quote John MacArthur, uh, he says just of the first three chapters of Genesis that they establish the vital foundation for everything we believe as Christians. And so, so much of what the church at large in America needs today is to return to the essentials of the Christian faith and doctrine. And we will do that here in the pages of Genesis. In our day of relativism, where anything can be true according to an individual, we must look to the author of truth and submit to him and him alone. The third reason why we've come to Genesis is I believe it sets a precedent for us as a church in the preaching ministry. I want to set the precedent of preaching through books of the Bible verse by verse. I believe this is the best practice for not only the preacher, but also for the listener. Uh, what you need each Sunday when you come to this place and sit in this pews is not to hear my opinions or my agendas or my thoughts, but to simply sit under the authority of Scripture. And what I need as the preacher is to do the same. And by walking through the books of the Bible verse by verse, that guards us from any secret agenda, any type of bully pulpit where I am allowed the opportunity to present something outside of what the Word of God would have for us. And so when we walk through books of the Bible, verse by verse, we allow Scripture in the providence of God to set the agenda. And I love that. That in the coming weeks, as issues come up in our church and maybe suffering or joy, whatever we face in the coming year, the Word of God will speak to us any given Sunday, and we can rest in that. And so when we gather in this place, week in and week out, and we walk through those doors, we leave our agendas at the door and submit ourselves to the Word of God's agenda. The fourth reason why we've come to Genesis is that it is profitable. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3 says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. All of Scripture is breathed out and inspired by God. Genesis to Revelation. And if we truly believe that this morning, as we say we do, 
We affirm that from Genesis to Revelation, this is the inspired, inerrant, perfect word of God. And so the book of Genesis is just as profitable for us in the Christian life as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Just because we live in a New Testament time does not mean that we simply rest in the New Testament. In fact, we must look to the old if we are going to understand the new. The book of Genesis is not an antiquated, outdated book. It is timeless. It is the Word of God. So four reasons why we have come to Genesis. Uh, The second question I want us to answer then is, how is it that we are going to interpret and read and study Genesis together? Now, this is not only helpful for us in how we consider reading Genesis, uh, but if you're taking notes, these are some helpful things to consider whenever you read any of the narrative stories of Scripture. Um, One of the hardest things that we find to do as as just normal churchgoers in reading through the Bible is understanding narrative. And so these are tools that we can use not only in the study of Genesis, but all of the narrative of Scripture. How do we consider it? And so uh, many of you have uh, told me and shared with me about your Scripture reading plan that you've set out for in the coming year to read through the Bible in the coming year. Uh, That brings such joy to me to hear that. It is my desire that all of us would be about reading through the Word of God through our lives. Uh, And these tools will be helpful for you as you are probably right now reading through Genesis. It's the easy end of the Pentateuch. And when you get to Leviticus and Deuteronomy and you get bogged down by the, the confusion of those books, I think these things can help you. So four things to consider when we think about how it is that we will study Genesis together. First, we will view this book as historical narrative. This is a story written by an actual man about actual people who lived and walked and breathed on this earth. A man by the name of Dennis Johnson helps us to understand what historical narrative means. Listen to what he says. This is rather lengthy, but it's very helpful. Uh, He says, through historical narratives, and so uh, the narrative story parts of the Bible, Genesis, Samuel, the Gospel, Acts, he says, God declares his acts in real history to set people free from sins, slavery, and death, to bring them into his holy covenant and to judge his enemies. Biblical history focuses our hopes finally on the redemption Jesus achieved when the fullness of time had come. Biblical history is not just a record of dry facts, but a recital of events that call us to trust and obey the God who saves in time and space. I love that. That is going to be our definition that we come back to time and time again as we go through Genesis. That this is a book of historical events that call us to trust and obey the God who saves in time and space. That is glorious. This is not fiction. This is not a myth. This is not fable. This is true, actual, historical events that happened. And in it, we learn about God. Um, This is, again, not a motivational story that Israelite parents wrote up to tell their children so they'd go to bed at night. These are true things that have happened here on planet Earth. The second way that we're going to interpret Genesis is literally. We will affirm that all of Genesis is just as it is taught. The flood, the plagues, the miraculous that we see in this book is true and real. 
And I know we live in a day of science that tells us these things could not possibly take place. But listen, dear friend, if you believe in verse 1 of Genesis, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, it is not too far-fetched to believe that a man can live in the belly of a fish for three days. Or that a man can be risen from the dead. Or that the seas can be parted so that God can show his hand of deliverance over his people. These things are child's play in the hand of a creator God. Don't be distracted by the noise, dear friend. The third thing, and the third way, if you will, how we will interpret this is through the lens of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Uh, This is something that I'm so looking forward to talking more about in the coming days, this grand narrative of Scripture, if you will. That as we look at the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, it is a story that falls under this umbrella, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. And this, again, is something that will help you as you read through Scripture. When you come to a a confusing part of the Bible to understand that it falls under one of these pillars and is directly connected to one of these pillars, The story of God creating a world that was perfect and in harmony with him, but was was broken by sin when sin entered in through the fall. But from that moment on, God was about moving history to an act of redemption where Christ himself died on the cross. And from this point forward, we are looking forward to a restoration that is to come in eternity. So we'll think of this as we look at and consider Genesis. The fourth and final way that we will read and interpret and understand the book of Genesis is with a God-centered, Christ-exalting view. We will not read ourselves into the text. We will not try to assume the emotions or the feelings or the circumstances and how, would, how does this feel to me? How would I feel in that situation? We will also not make ourselves the heroes of the story. You are not David, dear friend. You are not Moses. You are not Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. You are not Paul. You are a spectator. Thirdly, we will not read into the text things that are not there. This is hard in narrative especially because we want to you know, assume that certain things are happening and the tendency is for us to, to try and read things into the, the story that don't exist. We want to rest in the fact that the writer, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives exactly what we need. And so when he doesn't tell us the emotions that Mary felt on the donkey on the way to Bethlehem, that's okay. We don't have to try and read into the text. This type of reading of the Bible and preaching of the Bible uh, can kind of fall under a banner that has been known as moralistic therapeutic deism. You say, what in the world does that mean? It is a man-centric way of viewing Christianity, a man-centric way of viewing the Bible with the goal of simply feeling better about ourselves. And so you will hear preachers in our day do these things, read ourselves into the text, make ourselves the hero, assume things that are not there so that we are the center of the message. As we walk through Genesis together, we will read it with a big view of God, a small view of self, and a gospel focus. And so, you might have heard a sermon on 
the book of Nehemiah, if you will. And one of the sermons is 11 steps to being a better leader based on the leadership model of Nehemiah. The book of Nehemiah is not how we can be better leaders. The book of Nehemiah is about a God who delivers his people out of sin and death. He brings them out of exile and he restores them and redeems them for himself. You might have heard a sermon preached on David and Goliath, and, and I know full well the story of David and Goliath is not in the book of Genesis. This is just an illustration for us where the preacher says, Face your giants. Here's 12 ways for you to face the giants of your life. Again, you are not David. The story of David and Goliath is not how to be a better person. The story of David and Goliath is about a sovereign God who chooses a people for his own glory, and he will, be mocked, not, will not be mocked, and he will deliver his people. And David is just a sinful man who for a moment brought the nation of Israel deliverance, but it would not last long. Because there was one who was better who was coming, a better David who would bring deliverance to the nation of Israel once and for all. That is the story of David and Goliath. And so we will read Genesis with a God-centered, Christ-exalting view. And so, with all of that, we come then to the book itself. Um, in the English title, it's titled Genesis. This is, uh, comes from the Greek, which means origin or creation in the Hebrew it would have been as it was with the other five books of the Pentateuch the title in the Hebrew was the first word of the book so in the Hebrew Bible uh, Genesis Exodus Leviticus Numbers Deuteronomy the title came from the first word and so if you look there in the text uh, we see three words there at the beginning, in the beginning, in English. But in the Hebrew, this is just one word. So the title would be the book of beginnings or in the beginning. And this is rightly so uh, because this is the account of how creation and the universe came into existence. As we read through Genesis, we're going to see different genres, different types of writing. We're going to see law, history, prophecy. We even see poetry in the book of Genesis. We'll consider these as we walk through the book. And then something else for us to consider is the writer of the book of Genesis, which we will affirm as Moses. There are several reasons why we will affirm Moses as the writer of Genesis and why this is important. Uh, although it's not stated that Moses is the writer of Genesis, we see through reliable tradition of church history and, and Jewish history that ascribes authorship to Moses. Uh, we also see as we read through the Pentateuchs, the first five books of the Bible, which we affirm that Moses wrote, that he is closely related to the narratives. And so you might say, well, most of Genesis happens before Moses was even born. Uh, and so we understand that tradition is passed down orally we would affirm that that Moses would have received these stories being passed down by the patriarchs but remember who wrote the Bible men who were taught by the Holy Spirit so we affirm that Moses inspired by the Holy Spirit gives us what we see here in the pages of Genesis we also see where parts of Scripture refer to Moses as the author. Joshua calls it the book of the law of Moses. Jesus himself refers to it in the Gospel of John where Jesus said, If you believed Moses, you would also believe me. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus said they have Moses and the prophets. 
So we will affirm that Moses is the author of Genesis. Now, you might say, why is this important? Well, because in our day of philosophy and rationalism and enlightenment, there have been efforts to undermine the authority of Scripture as a whole by putting to question something as simple as the author of the book of Genesis. People who have set aside the revelation of God that this is the inspired word of God simply look at the book of Genesis as just another common piece of literature in the history of the world. And so I think it's good for us to consider this, and this is not fallible. This is something I'm still thinking through, so help me with this. But here's, here's what I like to think. If centuries of church history say one thing, And then some scholar comes along in our day with another idea based on philosophy and modern scholarship. We do not need to be distracted by a methodology that simply looks to undermine the authority of Scripture. I'm still working on that. We'll think about that some more together. That's kind of where I stand. But we will affirm Moses as the writer. Some themes to consider. If you're taking notes, you can write these down. Again, we're going to look at this under this grand narrative picture of creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Uh, This is all going to happen really quick at the beginning of the book of Genesis. Uh, We're going to see much of this take place. Uh, the, The promise of redemption is another theme that we see in Genesis. And that happens right away in the garden. The promise of coming Messiah happens really quick here in this story as we walk through this together. Another major theme, and and probably the main theme of Genesis, is the sovereignty of God. But also we see here the sinfulness of man and our need for deliverance. Um, We like to make the, the heroes of the Bible these big, grand people who could do no wrong. But I hope in the coming weeks as we walk through the story of Abraham's descendants that we see a dysfunctional family who has a lot of drama and a lot of turmoil because they need God to intervene on their behalf. So these are some themes that we'll see in Genesis together. So with all of that background, with all of that laid, let's then turn as we close this morning to these four words, in the beginning, God. Uh, I've already touched on this, but we see this as four words in the English. Uh, But in the Hebrew, this is just two words, bereset Elohim. Uh, Bereset meaning in the beginning, Elohim is is a common title for God. And these two words lay the foundation for all of Scripture. So I want us to consider that as we close this morning. What do we learn from these two Hebrew words? Well, first, if we primarily look at in the beginning, we learn a couple of things. We see first that there was a time when nothing existed but God. You might have heard the phrase creation ex nihilo or out of nothing. We see here that God spoke the universe into being out of nothing. He didn't take an eternally pre-existent goop and put it together to make something. He spoke everything into existence by the word of his power. And this in no way contradicts, contradicts the absolute law that out of nothing comes nothing. Because, again, notice what the writer says. In the beginning, God. God was there. He is eternally self-existent. He alone speaks things into being and to order. He alone is the one who can do this, and he has in himself alone. This is a good point to pause for just a moment and mention something. 
um, in considering the fact that God is the only one who has this type of creative power. This idea that is growing in the church today in America, that your words have power, is blasphemous. We're not talking about your words have power like James does, where James rightly says, if you say something uh, in your mouth, blessing and cursing the Lord, we have power, and, and, and if you hurt, hurt someone or harm someone with your words, there's consequences of that. We, we affirm that, absolutely. But what we do not affirm is that we can speak things into existence from our mouths. I had a college professor at a Baptist university who told me he had a Harley Davidson because he had put a picture of the Harley up on his vision board and said a Harley Davidson a hundred times a day until he got it. It's not how it works, friends. You are not God. You do not speak things into being. Another quick illustration, uh, Deion Sanders, the the Hall of Fame football player, uh, has a documentary right now about his coaching experience in college. And in one of the clips, before his team goes onto the field, Deion Sanders is giving a a speech to his team. And he says, men, I'm just going to go to the book of Genesis this morning, where it says, in the beginning, um, God created the heavens and the earth, and God said, let there be. And God said, let there be, and Deion Sanders says to his team, men, why can't we go out on the field today and say, let there be good offense? Let there be good defense. Let there be good special teams. Again, this is blasphemous. And it's a subtle threat to the church that we must guard ourselves from. So be be wary of this. Your words do not have power. You cannot name it and claim it. This is not true. This goes against what we see here about God. The second thing, though, that we see here about in the beginning is that not only was there a time when nothing existed but God, but we also see that there is an absolute moment when time began. Uh, The word here, uh, three words in the English, in the beginning, um, usually is used throughout the Old Testament to speak relatively of the beginning of a time period. So you might see this word other places in Scripture translated from the beginning or at the beginning. But my translation, and I'm assuming yours as well, says in the beginning. Because here the context shows us precisely when time began. The beginning of time itself. God has no beginning or end. He, his existence is from everlasting to everlasting, but creation has a point where it begins. The, the second word there, though, Elohim, the word God, this is really important because right away the, the author does something for us. He makes God the subject of the text. In the beginning, God. God is the subject. He is the main primary character of this verse and all of the pages of Scripture. Next week we're going to go throughout the rest of chapter 1 and we're going to see how God is used 34 times. He is the central theme, the main character of the story of Genesis and all of Scripture. Uh, This word Elohim is the second most used noun in the Old Testament, for whatever that's worth. Um, What we see, though, it's it's a common word for God. So we have the the name Yahweh, which is God's personal name. We know other names for God. The, The word here that the writer uses, though, is just the common word, the general word for God. And this is appropriate because the writer is not putting his emphasis on the personal God of Israel here as much as he is emphasizing a God as sovereign creator of the universe. 
God is sovereign over creation, and we see that here, and we'll see it throughout the book of Genesis. This word sovereign, uh, meaning that God has the right and the wisdom and the power to do all that he pleases. That, that, that idea is screaming from the text here. That it is God alone who has the right and wisdom and power to do as he pleases. This is a theme that we see here in Genesis. Another thing to consider about Elohim is that it's not syn- synonymous with the English word for God. First of all, in, in English, we throw around the word God in a very flippant way. But also, for the secularist, the word God is just an abstract concept. But that's not the case for the writer of the text. The biblical view of God is that he is not only real, but that he can be seen by his works. This is so important. He's not abstract. He's not just a thought. He is real and true, and we can see him by his works. Um. There was a time when this idea of intelligent design in human history was not considered illogical. For most of human history, it was considered logical to understand that there is a creator. And you have to look no further than creation itself. It's not until our modern days where you are kind of seen as a crazy person if you believe in a creator. Listen, friend, the complexities of creation scream God. They declare his glory and his existence. And so the atheist can find himself in an art gallery and look at a painting on the wall and affirm that some intelligent being created that piece of art. But the same atheist will look at the complexity of creation and deny God's very existence. The most basic structure in creation is far more complex than any painting or any building or any technology that man will ever create in this life. We also see here, though, in the word Elohim that God is not a distant and unknown deity. Although he uses the word Elohim, it is unquestionable that the writer here has in mind the God of Abraham the God of Jacob, the God of Isaac. This is Yahweh himself, the one true living God, the God who makes covenant and keeps covenant promise with his people, the God who redeems in time and space. He has come near to us. He has revealed himself to us. He has made a way for us to return once again into fellowship with him by the blood of the cross. And so as we consider these things then, in the beginning, God, I want us to close with just four brief points of application. First, as we think of this creator, sovereign king of the universe, he alone is to be worshipped. It would be foolish to worship things made by human hands and things that are made by the creator himself. He alone is the one to be worshipped. We do not worship the created, we worship the creator, or we should. How often do we find ourselves worshiping created things? Technology, our jobs, hobbies. This creator God alone is to be worshiped. Secondly, he alone should be obeyed. The law of God is supported by the creation account. Uh, that, and, and we'll talk about this in the coming weeks, that 
God's laws that he gives to us, we see running through the the verses here of chapter 1 and chapter 2 and chapter 3. Should creation not obey its creator? Should creation not trust its creator? We, as the people of God, should not live then in bondage to rules and theories and agendas of men and the culture. We must submit ourselves completely to obedience to Christ alone. The third point of application is that God alone deserves our allegiance. Such a sovereign king demands all allegiance. If he is indeed the one true creator God, we should submit ourselves before him, and not just on Sunday mornings. In every area of our life, Monday through Sunday, at our job, in our homes, everything about us is changed by the reality that God himself has come near to us and made a way for us to be redeemed. Fourthly, though, as we close, the final point of application is we see that he alone is our truth. We must understand everything through the lens of revelation, that God has revealed himself. Firstly, he's revealed himself through creation in a general sense, as we'll see here in the the next few weeks as we look at creation. That you look to creation and God declares himself as creator, but he's also revealed himself to us through his word primarily, specifically, special revelation. That we can know of his nature and his character and who he is and what he has done to redeem a people for himself. And so if there is indeed one true God, as we affirm this morning, then we might ask the question, how do we know him? Can we know him? Does he reveal himself? And the answer to that question is yes and amen. He has revealed himself to us this morning in his word. He's revealed himself to us this morning through his son. And so I want to close by asking Do you you know this creator God? Maybe you're here and and you affirm the existence of some sort of deity, some sort of creative being, and, and you wonder to yourself, can I know him? Can he be known? Who is he? Which religion is the one that gets it right? And I want to encourage you to consider this morning that this creator God can be known. And he can be known through the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. God himself came to this earth and lived a sinless life and died on a cross and rose victoriously over sin and death and ascended into heaven. And if you believe that this morning and you repent and turn from your sins, you can find life eternal and know this creator God. And you can walk in fellowship with him all your days and spend eternity with him. Do you believe in Christ this morning? If you've yet to do that, I would encourage you this morning to consider that reality and turn to Christ. Look to Christ alone for salvation. Let's pray.